Y'all, welcome back. I am so excited uh, to be back uh, because this is a topic that, by comparison to all the topics thus far, uh, this is the one that I'm most ignorant on. And probably most of you are wondering how that's possible, seeing as I haven't known Jack Waggle about a single topic thus far. But if it is possible, believe me, I know even less about this one because we're doing cryptocurrency. Bitcoin being the most well-known version, but as I'm finding out, there are you know r- roughly three thousand different cryptocurrencies out there. Which I mean, just fucking why? I don't even. Well, and look, yes, I say the f word. Uh, any of you who listened to the last episode when uh, when we started, I, I had advanced as a co-host. You definitely heard me say that a lot. I, I do try to rein it in most days, but. Uh, yeah, that was my first. That was my first ever co-hosted episode, and as you could tell, I was honestly I was excited and I was having fun. So uh, the f bombs over Baghdad were dropped early and often. Uh, I have decided, or we have decided, or whatever. Uh, I'm going to do a show with Vance every month, uh, and that's why um, that's why the show you're listening to right now has changed names. So moving forward, uh, this show that I do solo, this podcast I do solo, uh, we're going to call that Everything Is Interesting. Uh, which I do genuinely believe, because I mean, so far every topic I've looked into, it, it's brought forth just amusing, if not astounding, information. I mean, stuff that has, has blown my mind, and so I'm wanting to put that idea to the test. Uh, so this show is no longer called "But What Do I Know," and is now and forevermore going to be known as "Everything Is Interesting." Then I'm going to do a monthly episode with Vance as well, because I mean, like honestly, it was just a lot of fun. But I think he brings a totally different perspective to the table. Uh, that show uh, that he and I will do will henceforth be known as Everything is Interesting Ellipses. That's debatable because he does not share <laughs> my uh, my overarching concept. He he. I mean, look, he just we disagree on some things, and uh, you know we'll see we'll see how long that runs because honestly it was really fun. But regardless, this episode right here right now, you and me, this episode is about online currencies. Uh, like I said, there's about 3,000 different cryptocurrencies being used right now uh, with a total market share, I mean, depending on where you look and, and who you're asking, but finance.yahoo.com says it's up to $220 billion uh, is in tied up in, in all the different cryptocurrencies. And that's as of the end of 2019, which there were some dips recently. So I mean, look, I don't know, but re- regardless, the one that everybody knows, or at least most people know, or the most famous is Bitcoin. And as of March 30th today, 2020, one Bitcoin is worth, you know, 6400 bucks, give or take a minute or two, because the thing literally, like, I've checked it like four times over the last hour, and it's changed, you know, little bits here and there. But, okay, so get this. Right now, today, March 30th, 2020, $6,400 for one Bitcoin. But on March 6th, like three weeks ago, one Bitcoin was $9,100. Then in March 12th, less than a week after March 6th, March 12th, it it dropped to $4,900. So, I mean, how's that even possible? In less than a month, it went from nine grand to under five grand. And then right now, today, it's at 6,400. I mean, what? So, I mean, look, clearly, I don't know anything about this, meaning I had to do a ton of digging on this episode. So, let's begin at the beginning. Where do we start? Oh, yeah, still right here at Goofy Clown Face. The year, 1983. David Bowie was crushing it all over the charts. 
Al Pacino and Scarface was still in theaters, and the Philadelphia 76ers won the NBA championship thanks to Dr. J and Moses Malone. All of those events completely overshadowed the honestly wonderful and amazing works of David Chaum at C-H-A-U-M, David Chaum or Chaum, I don't know, but he, David, was an American cryptographer creating the first anonymous cryptographic electronic money that he called eCash. And look, if you're like me, you're probably wondering, you know, how a cryptographer, you know, a guy who makes maps for a living would even begin developing electronic money. But as it turns out, people who make maps are cartographers. Cryptographers, of course, are people who study and understand all of the episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Jokes! So yeah, for realsies, uh, cryptographers, they develop algorithms and security systems to encrypt sensitive information and provide privacy for companies and people and you know all that. Cryptographers are just people like David Jom, who in the early 80s realized digital currency is possible. And in 1990, old Davy Chomster, he created DigiCash. So just how exactly does DigiCash work? Well, look, you and I both know I don't understand any of this stuff, (laughs) clearly. So here goes. DigiCash was linked directly to the U.S. dollar or in other countries tied directly to the common currency. It did not have its own empirical value, like you know, like the cryptocurrencies of today, like Bitcoin or any of them, Ethereum, all of it, whatever. Originally, DigiCash, it was it was just like a digital middleman, mostly used as a way to buy things online, but without having to put in all your credit card information. Because I mean, you know, in the nineties people were already buying things online. That wasn't a new idea. David Chom just, you know, and a handful of others. He saw the growing concern with, you know, giving your banking information to websites and putting it out there online. So, you know, hackers and such and all that. So, I mean, DigiCash, you know, and, and the early electronic money types were a way to solve that problem. They were, you know, an encrypted system that, that was able to take and receive payments from consumers and vendors and distribute them to the correct people without showing the sensitive information along the way. Basically, they were like an armored car for online transactions. But like an armored car that was also invisible, bro, you feel me? But I mean, look, that's as best I can describe it because I'm not going to get into like the technologic details. I mean, but it really was. It was it was an invisible armored online car for your transactions. DigiCash was actually more popular in Europe than it was in the States because uh, the idea of credit cards had taken hold in the States pretty quickly, but it wasn't as prevalent, at least not yet, in Europe. So countries like Germany and, and Switzerland adopted it real quick, which, you know, of course they did. One more way for the Swiss to hoard Nazi gold. Take that, you Nazis. I burned you good. Look, I, I say that like I could actually prove anything. Like, I don't know shit. You know that. I, I just want to sound smart and cool like like Meyer, you know, Al Pacino's characters and, and, and character in The Hunters. I mean, like, in reality, I don't even, <laughs> until right now, I don't even know the date that World War II ended. Uh, I had to Google it. <laughs> and two dates stood out. April 30th, 1945, is when Hitler killed himself, you know, supposedly in a bunker. Because did he, bro? Can you prove it? I don't know, bro. He might still... Anyways, September 2nd, 1945, is when the Japanese officials surrendered to the Allies. Which, it, honestly, it's <laughs> at least to me, it's an interesting coincidence because my birthday is April 30th, and my son's birthday is September 2nd. So, of course, for his next birthday, he's getting a brick of gold and a card that says, Happy birthday, kiddo. Don't be a Nazi. Nazis suck. Yes, the douche. 
Those dirty, rotten, scoundrel Nazis. Oh, whoa, everyone. Uh, I didn't, didn't really plan on this. Guess, guess who just showed up? It looks like Mildred Jurgensen, president and co-founder of the, the Danish Daniel Stern fan club. Please, a big round of applause for, for Mildred here. Yes, 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 yes. That's it, that's it, that's enough, that's enough. Fuck the Nazis. The Nazis tried to round up all the Danish Jews in 1943s, but we outsmarted them. Danish citizens found out the evil Nazi scum were coming, and so we helped over 7,000 Jews escape. We didn't have weeks to plan. We didn't even have days to get the strategy, but that was fine. We Danes only needed one night, and in that 12-hour span before the Nazis showed up, we assisted our Jewish brothers and sisters to flee to Sweden where they could get asylum. So look here. Do the Swedes have Nazi gold? I don't care. They helped us when we needed them most. All I can say is if they do have Nazi gold, they better never give it back. I hope they spent it all on hot chocolate and Swiss army knives. Fuck the Nazis. Honestly, I'm... Uh... I'm not even going to rush Mildred out of here this time. Uh, in fact, I can't argue at all because everything you just said was 100% historically accurate, Mildred. Thank you for uh, for stopping by. You got anything anything else you want to add before uh, you know before we cap this off? Yes, I think Al Pacino's does a great job on that show's The Hunters. However, there is just one set things that bothers me. Is it uh, is it that Al Pacino is actually Italian and he's not Jewish? No, no, my dear boy. The only problems. I have. And again, Al Pacino does a great job. I just think everyone knows that the character Meyer would have been a perfect fit for Daniel Stearns. Sure, Daniel was born to a Jewish family, so he's a more natural fit to the character. But more so, Daniel Stern is just a better all-around actor than Al Pacino's. Everyone's in Denmark's ugly Swiss me here's. Uh, again, for the record, I've said this before, but Mildred's opinions do not necessarily reflect the views here at Everything is Interesting, uh, formerly known as But What Do I Know? But in this particular case, uh, they totally do. Daniel Stern is a better actor than Al Pacino, and I dare any of you to try and prove me wrong. Back to cryptocurrency. So, in America, Digicash, it never really caught on. Uh, I don't really know why, but it was only used in one bank, the Mark Twain Bank in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, it's a bank I've never been to, but I am certain all the bank tellers have giant mustaches. Uh, talking men and women here alike. Big, beautiful, bushy mustaches. And of course, we're smoking a pipe right there in the bank, right behind the counter. Apparently, though, these mustaches and pipe smoking didn't help Digicash to gain popularity. Because after uh, three years of being up and running, Digicash only had 500 customers using it. Which is, I mean, it's, it's three years, man. You got it. So, I mean, look, David Chom and Digicash folded in the late 90s. I think it was 1998. Uh, because, honestly, Americans were just using their credit cards online. Which, look, admittedly, e-money is a lot safer. I mean, using any crypto, Digicash, whatever you had at the time, it was a lot safer than putting your credit card out there. And David knew that. But at the time, most people didn't. Seem to understand or care. And in fact, somebody even asked David uh, at some. It doesn't matter, but asked David, you know, why didn't you know people take on Digicash? Why didn't this this idea you know take hold? And <laughs> Chomzy, old old Chomermeister, he said, "Quote: 
As the World Wide Web grew in popularity, the level of sophistication of the average internet user dropped. It was hard to explain the importance of privacy to them. End quote. Basically, he was saying what we all know. I mean, everybody knows. Nobody cares about privacy today. Just look at Facebook or Instagram. We, we post every time we leave the house, every time we go to eat. Every, I mean, look, y'all, come on. Websites like OnlyFans exist. Clearly, our privacy is not a big concern. We all know our phones and Alexa and Google Homes and all the other devices. They're constantly listening to us. Constantly. And do we throw them away? No. We give them as gifts for Christmas. But we weren't doing that in 1998. And people at the time weren't ready or willing or even understood what anonymous encrypted money was and didn't seem to care. And here's the thing. Even though it didn't take hold in the U.S., like I said, you know, Europe and Asia, and honestly, a lot of countries over there, a lot of people took to the idea. They, they liked the idea of DigiCash. So in the 90s, uh, a lot of countries, I mean, nationwide policies were laid out across the globe. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of countries made their own services. The Netherlands made its own electronic cash system called the ChipNip. C-H-I-P-K-N-I-P. Uh, Belgium made what they called the Belgian Proton, which sounds super badass. Uh, it was basically, it was just an electronic form of your debit card. Like, it really wasn't that special. But it ran for like almost a decade. It started in 95, and it finally started to you know, pretty much dissolve in 2014 because, I mean, it didn't really innovate itself. And look, there was just so many competitors by 2014. There was just, the sheer volume just overtook it. Uh, Hong Kong... In 1997, originally it was just like a bus and rail card, but the thing they made eventually, like merchants and hundreds of different stores started to accept it as payments. So it just kind of became its own thing. Uh, Japan had a similar one as well. I mean, look, all of these countries and all of this adds up to enough publicity across the old pond that by the year 2000, the EU started to define terms relating to e-money. Uh, which has made it, you know, relatively easier for people to have access to this kind of stuff because at least it made some guidelines. The U.S., good old the U.S. of A., not so much. Obviously, people in the U.S. owned and traded Bitcoin and, you know, Litecoin and Ethereum and all the rest. We'll get to the names. But the government, the American government, wasn't as open to such a concept as the rest of the world. At least didn't, wasn't, what, they didn't want to rush into writing code or laws about it. However, in 2013... The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, an organization I've never heard of, issued a guidance to clarify the U.S. Bank Secrecy Act and how it applies to virtual currencies. Uh, by the time it finally came down, it took to about 2014 that the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, which I have heard of, hey, look at me knowing stuff. Honestly, I, I didn't even know what the SEC stood for. I mean, I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's the Southeastern Conference. But the real SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, in May of 2014, quote, warned about the hazards of Bitcoin and other virtual currencies, end quote, which in July 2014, a couple months later, the New York State Department of Financial Services promote, proposed, pardon me, proposed the most comprehensive set of rules and regulation of virtual currency ever. Uh, it's commonly referred to as the bit license. It was just broad stroke rules. And at the time, I mean, really, it was set to only pertain to New Yorkers or companies that were buying and selling with New Yorkers, which, I mean, you know, seemed small enough or simple enough. But as I came to find out, a lot of the world's companies either buy from or sell to New York. Uh, of course, what do I know? I'm an idiot. So, Apparently, it's a set of regulations that favor bigger corporations and the already established businesses and companies that already had a ton of money to spend on lobbying. 
Gee, what a coincidence, I'm sure. But yeah, so 2014 is, is jumping too far ahead, I admit. All these squares make a circle, so let's circle back. All these squares make a circle. Quite. As you were saying. Digicash died off and some time passed, and along came Bitcoin in 2008, started by Satoshi Nakamoto. And here's the thing. No one knows who that is. Previous to 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto did not exist. There's no record of that person anywhere. Or at least not, you know, some any type of technological. It, 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 it's, it's just super weird because no one knows who that is. I mean, there's this guy just showed up out of nowhere in 2008. So, I mean, look, just consider this. Bitcoin collectively, just, just Bitcoin, has roughly $150 billion of worldwide value. According to coin market cap, Bitcoin's sum total is $156.7 billion. Amazon's online marketplace isn't worth that. It's only worth $115 billion, and we know exactly who started that. eBay is worth $45 billion, and of course we know who started that. Actually, I don't. <laughs> so I had to Google it. Uh, his name is Pierre Omidyar, but that's exactly my point. You can still find out who runs that. You can Google it. His picture comes up. There's an entire history. Born when? He's still alive. Where does he live? Who's his parents? You can find out everything about all these people. Every billion-dollar corporation, you can find out instantly. Literally. Every single billion-dollar corporation, want to know who runs it? Simply Google it, and bing, you get the name. Jeeves, actually. So I asked .com Jeeves, and he just screamed, Yahoo! Jokes. Obviously, that last bit, it was absurd, I admit that. But for real, no one knows who Satoshi is. It's this mysterious Satoshi Nakamoto. He wrote a paper in 2008, and that's what got the digital currency ball rolling. October 31st, 2008. The paper was called, quote, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, end quote. And when that got published, that pretty much started all of this. I mean, best I can tell. And that leads us to our first ever Everything is Interesting timeline. So 2006 is where we're going to start. A little-known website uh, actually was originally made for buying and selling Magic the Gathering cards, a game I know nothing about, so I'm not even going to try and go into it. But Jed McCaleb, he built a website for himself and his buddies and all the other players of Magic the Gathering online. And it was just, you know, as a way for him to, them to trade and buy and whatever cards. So he named the website mt.gox, Mt. Gox. You know, it was Magic the Gathering Online Exchange, mtgox. Get it? Got it. What does that have to do with cryptocurrency? Nothing. But, but, we'll circle back. 2008, Bitcoin has started. It has no real value. It's not tied to any specific monetary value. Like all the previous versions, anything that had been made up to this point, it had an actual dollar or euro or pound value. Everything up until right now was tied to something. This is the first ever standalone currency. So in 2009, Nakamoto, whoever that is, sends 10 bitcoins to his buddy, Hal Finner, who was also a computer programmer, which, it, as, it, as best anyone can tell, is the first ever transaction of digital currency. Now, some people think Hal might actually be Nakamoto, but we'll, we'll get to all that later. We're just going to go through the timeline first. 2010, May 22nd. A bitcoin user swapped 10,000 bitcoins and exchanged them for two pizzas. So, I mean, Bitcoin still has no value to itself, but we do know that pizzas, you know, let's say they're 15 bucks. I don't know, whatever. But they're 15 bucks. 
So that made the first you know, real transaction or the first monetary 5,000 Bitcoins equaled roughly $15. So I mean, look, at the time, it still only had novelty value. You couldn't buy like a car with it. I don't care how many Bitcoins you had. The Tesla dealership didn't give a shit. You could have showed up with 200 billion Bitcoins. They're not giving you anything. So I mean, it's still just kind of this novelty thing, but it was able to be traded for real things. Pizza showed up, dude ate pizza, he gave him Bitcoins, end of transaction. So it works. Proof of concept, if nothing else. August 8th, 2010. Bitcoin is hacked. Uh, the first of literally thousands of cryptocurrency thefts and hacks to come. I mean, th this is the first one. Uh, but man, there's... It, I can't even... Like, to list all of them, I, you know, it's... There, anyways, we'll get back to that too. But it's, just, it's absurd how often and uh, how early it's just it was just happening. So anyways... August 8, 2010, somebody stole uh, reportedly 184 billion Bitcoins. So, I mean, today, like I said, they're worth over $6,000. So, I mean, someone technically stole over one quadrillion dollars. But, I mean, not really because at the time, the Bitcoin still, you know, it's, it's iffy value at best. But whatever, if they, had some, if they had kept that 184 billion Bitcoins, they would have over a quadrillion dollars, which is a phrase I've never said before. 2010 also saw uh, Mt. Gox, MT.GOX, uh, it got rebranded. That, that uh, you know, Magic the Gathering, Jed McCaleb thing I was talking about earlier. He, Jed, saw the future potential of trading Bitcoins. And so he took the same website he already had for trading Magic playing cards and switched it over to trading cryptocurrency, which, hey, good for him. 2011, the market starts to open up. A lot of companies show up, like Litecoin and Namecoin and Swiftcoin. I mean, there's tons. And the new competition brings this concept closer to the public eye and closer to public scrutiny. The Karens of the world hate Bitcoin. Why? Because it was being used on the dark web. Ooh. I mean, it totally was, to be fair. Uh, sites like Silk Road, which I had never heard of until literally right now, uh, they're basically like online black markets. They're websites that you could buy, you know, drugs or prostitutes or I mean, literally pretty much anything you wanted. Think Etsy, but with no oversight and no police interference. And look, okay, look, I know the concept of black markets and dark webs and drugs and prostitutes. I, I know that's controversial. I get that. And if some of you don't like it, that's it's cool. I'm not going to talk you out of that. But I just want to state clearly, and for the record, I don't care at all. If a 21-year-old adult wants to buy something from another 21-year-old adult, as long as both are adults, as long as they both know what they're getting, and as long as, most importantly here, most importantly, both parties agree fully and on their own free will up front to do any and all of it, I don't give a shit. If one adult wants to have another adult meet them at 3 a.m. at a Denny's parking lot, hop in the backseat of their 87 Chevy Nova, and have one person pay the other person to give them an old-fashioned rusty salad fork, then by all means go ahead. As long as everyone agrees up front and everyone's cool with it, I don't care. So I started reading about the Silk Road because it's it's honestly, it's wicked interesting. I'm sure there's a whole episode's worth of stuff just right there, but for now we're going to try and condense it. For the most part, I was okay with it. I was okay with prostitutes. Don't give a damn. Look, we can debate that later, but I'm okay with pirated movies, pirated music. Don't care. Allegedly, I did all that shit. Not, well, doesn't matter. Moving on. The majority of it, I don't care. Like, okay, here's, I'll give you a play-by-play, -play, uh, essentially, of here's what it was like to be me reading through the list of things you could get or do or whatever on Silk Road. I'm just browsing through things like 
All right, we got Facebook passwords, night vision goggles, gun silencers, like, you know, whatever, no big deal. Viagra, cocaine, meth. I mean, look, I, I don't I don't personally enjoy cocaine. And honestly, I, I figured meth heads don't have the internet. But hey, good for y'all. That's your thing. Professional escorts, strippers, prostitutes, yada, yada, yada. Police issue handcuffs, fake passports, gambling on human death matches. Okay, this is, this is getting a little dark, but... uh. If I'm going to stick by my by my original reasoning, I guess as long as both the people in the human death matches are, you know, adults and they both agreed up front and again of their own free will, not like they had some mob ties or they were, you know, owed a debt to somebody, then as long as they're both choosing to freely find sure man, have fun. Whatever. I kept reading, you know, there's plenty more mundane stuff. It, it, there's so just it, it lists on lists of just crap no one cares about. It's all PG more or less. Then I saw two things. And the first red flag was when I read Murder for Hire. Like, uh, eh, not so, not so sure about this anymore. Because, I mean, clearly that violates the whole, like, uh, everybody's on the same page agreement part. Because I doubt the person being murdered agreed to that. I mean, it, it's, it's murder. Don't murder people. Clearly. Clearly. So I'm, I'm starting to pull back. <laughs> I admit, I'm, start, I'm going through this list. I'm starting to pull back. And then I saw the last straw, the obvious last straw. Silk Road was offering child porn. So immediately, fuck that. Fuck this site. I hope the FBI takes it down. So apparently, y'all, I found my line. Uh, you know, murder for hire, not a fan. Touching kids, I'm going to call them murder for hire folks and have them give you much worse than a rusty salad fork. Of course, when I say call the murder for hire, uh, that wasn't an option. Nobody's giving out their cell phones, obviously. Every transaction on Silk Road was sent via encrypted messaging and, and everything was paid for with Bitcoin. So, I mean, look, Silk Road was mostly harmless. Honestly, I'm sure most of it was harmless, but it did cross too many lines and it got shut down with good reason. Fuck you. Don't touch kids. How fucking dare you? Moving on. It was an operation, Silk Road, for years. Uh, It traded almost exclusively using Bitcoins, which propped up Bitcoin's value significantly. Like, there were other sites similar to Silk Road, and all of them pretty much only operated using forms of currency that don't have, you know, physical ties. And most people attribute Bitcoin's success, early success, to sites like Silk Road. Essentially, the the, the two businesses depended on each other because you couldn't use credit cards to buy online prostitutes. I mean, obviously. So you had to use Bitcoin. There was no other way around it. So Bitcoin needed Silk Road and Silk Road, Silk Road needed Bitcoin. It was, it was a symbiotic relationship. It, it, was, it was a self-serve online money laundering system, which, <laughs> side note here, and this is, this is 100% true. I was, I was living in Colorado and I was working at a bank uh, around the time, just right before, when marijuana got legalized in the state. Uh, within a few months of working at the bank, we started receiving huge cash deposits that just reeked of the stickiest of icky shuffles. But because we were a national bank, we, we couldn't take the money. We, we weren't allowed to take money if it smelled like the Mary Jane you want us. So regardless, $5, anything in between, we weren't touching it. Anything that smelled like it, we weren't touching it because federally, it was still illegal. And banks weren't trying to, why? Why would you risk it? You're a bank. You're making plenty of money. You don't need to miss. So after we turned away enough of these deposits, and every bank across the state, I'm sure, did, these same people would return with slightly faded, super wrinkly bills. Which, uh, you know, at the time, whatever, I didn't care, it didn't smell, so I wasn't breaking, nobody cared, it's fine, it's just kind of weird looking, but whatever. 
Eventually, we realized, though, that these people were physically running money through the washing machine to help the smell fade, which just it it just makes me laugh because it seems like imagine you tell a nine year old about the concept of money laundering. And in my head, a nine year old is going to be like, yeah, it makes sense. You run the money through the laundry, money laundering like I get it. But these people actually were. So anyways. The Karens of the world, uh, they hated Bitcoin for being used on Silk Road, and they made a big national stink, which accidentally, I'm sure this wasn't their plan, but it accidentally gave Bitcoin national exposure, which of course boosted Bitcoin's value, I mean, even more than it already was. It, it skyrocketed through the roof because people who weren't or otherwise wouldn't have known about it now suddenly do, and now they just think it's cool because it's new. So I mean, it's it's kind of like if you made it if you made it through the last episode that I did on video games uh, with my co-host, there was a I mean, first of all, I don't know how you did if you did, but if you did, thanks. There was a spot in that show in that episode about a video game called Death Race. Uh, it was a stand-up arcade game. It was considered violent in the '70s, debatable at best. But anyways, it wasn't very popular. But the Karens of the '70s picketed it and made a big stink which immediately boosted its sales nationwide. You know, no publicity is bad publicity. Okay, I want to take a second here. I I, I know a few people named Karen in real life, and they're all great people. Uh, In fact, one of my best friends of all time, his mother is named Karen, and she is an absolute angel. She took us camping back in the day, you know, when we were too young to drive. And this wonderful woman, she put up with us hooligans for entire weekends. I mean, she'd drive us, I mean, there's like five teenage boys. She'd drive us like three hours to get to the campsite, then put up with a full weekend's worth of just being idiots, followed by a three-hour drive home, and she did this many times. That woman is a saint, and for the record, I don't, I'm not referencing any Karens that I actually know in real life. That's just, you know, for those of you who know and those of you that don't, whatever, Karen is the internet's chosen name for the type of person that I'm trying to illustrate. So anyways, let's, uh, let's circle back to the timeline. Squares make a circle. Quite. As you were saying. 2012, Peercoin has started. And in general, the idea of cryptocurrencies start to gain a lot more mainstream attention. I mean, even the, the TV show The Good Wife references it in an episode. And just, you know, just in general, more people are talking about it. I, I just kind of remember this. I mean, 2012, you know, it's eight years ago, which seems like a long time. But it's also not like it, I just remember it starting to show up and it becomes more part of just the casual conversation. 2013 big changes show up. Uh, Bitcoin itself breaks into two groups. Uh, There's a heated debate on new rules and processes and, you know, whatever, and stuff I don't fully understand. But at the time, the Bitcoin community, there was there was strong stances taken. So it so it fractured into two sides. Thailand uh, banned it altogether. Germany refused to accept it as an official currency. What? Because you only want to accept Nazi gold, you motherfucker? All right, look, I get it. Look, I'm sorry, because I've actually been to Germany. And everyone I met there was super cool. I, I had a really good time. They were all super nice. Like, they were just nice people. And obviously, none of them are fans of Nazis today. So, I mean, look, anyways, Germany's not the only coin that hates on Bitcoin. Not the only coin. Not the only country. Germany ain't the only one that hates on Bitcoin. The People's Bank of China denies the entire country from using it, which destroyed the value of Bitcoin at the time. It dropped it big. It was, it was a huge drop because, obviously, China Meanwhile, Canada went the other direction, and they launched the very first Bitcoin ATM. Gotta love Canadians, eh? So, still in 2003, America is, is honestly, it's coming on strong with the idea. Like I said, it just seems to get bigger and more, it's just, it's just in the public space more often. So much so, that a Florida man bought a Tesla Model S for 91 Bitcoins. Uh, at the time, the car was worth $103,000. 
So 91 Bitcoins marks a huge jump in Bitcoin value from, you know, 5,000 gets you a pizza to now 91 gets you a $100,000 Tesla. So apparently the Tesla dealership that didn't give a shit earlier has decided to care now. And this marked the largest purchase to date with Bitcoin. Most importantly, though, at least in my opinion, 2003 brought about the best coin of all, Dogecoin. Literally, based on the Shibu Inu dog, you know, Doge, the, you know, the, the internet meme. Y'all, this is me. Yeah, I can't believe I'd never heard of this when it was happening. I really wish I did, but you know, whatever. Good old Dogecoin. It was sponsored a legit NASCAR racer, a legit NASCAR called Dogecar. D-O-G-E-C-A-R. Which, Dogecar spelled backward, is race god. Because it friggin' was. It even finished 20th at Talladega. Much fast. Very wow. Super yay. 2014. Russia bans Bitcoin and other electronic dollars. Silk Road is shut down by the FBI because fuck you, Silk Road. Also in 2014, that MT Gox, that Mount Gox that I referenced earlier that you might be wondering why I referenced, here's why. By 2014, it had grown to the largest seller, receiver, Bitcoin exchange in the world. It was handling over 70% of Bitcoin transactions worldwide. Then in February of 2014... Mt. Gox closed and filed for bankruptcy. Why? Because 850,000 bitcoins were supposedly stolen or lost or mismanaged or something. At the time, worth over $450 million. They did eventually recover about 200-ish thousand coins, but that ain't enough. I mean, many folks at the company, some say, might have taken a few coins for themselves before they declared bankruptcy, and it somehow, even after declaring bankruptcy, MTGOX still had like $500 million in assets, so I mean, kind of shady, little, little bit shady. Moving on, 2015, Bitfinex takes over as the new largest Bitcoin exchange, and in 2016, they were hacked, and they lost $70 million worth of Bitcoins. I seriously, I wanted to list all of the, the cryptocurrency thefts and hacks, but it's just like this, it would take hours. Like the, the lists go on and on. I mean, there's some that are just, just tiny, minuscule, nothing. And there's some that are millions. I mean, it, in total, supposedly, over $4 billion has been stolen or hacked or whatever in crypto theft. I mean, it, it happens, it has happened every month of every year from 2012 to 2020. Bithum or Bithum, CoinRail, BitGrail, which, look, Monty Python needs to endorse, if they don't already, but they do, or they need to for sure. CoinCheck, eCoin, I mean, countless others have all lost thousands to millions each. But somehow that doesn't stop the industry from growing. Like, the industry just keeps on chugging, with or without all of these thefts or hacks or whatever, which, honestly, at first... I was surprised that all these robberies didn't stop the industry. I would have thought that would scare people away. But then, I mean, look, banks, back in the day, banks were robbed all the time. I mean, Wyatt Earp, Bonnie and Clyde, Jesse James, his brother Frank James, Butch Cassidy, Harry Longabaugh, Sundance Kid, a.k.a. Sundance Kid. I don't know how you say his last name. Harry Longabaugh? Anyways, Sundance Kid. Literally, them and thousands of others, they robbed all the time back in the day, but banks didn't stop. Banks kept popping up all over the world. So, I mean, why would cryptocurrency stop? Well, they didn't. Uh, And in 2016, uh, there are now 485 Bitcoin ATMs. That's in January 2016. 485 Bitcoin ATMs. A mere 11 months later, 
December 2016, there were almost 900. I mean, that growth is staggering. It, it is shooting. The, the industry isn't slowing down at all. Argentina, as a country, allows Uber to accept Bitcoin payments. And then that the uh, the gaming developing, sorry, the gaming software distributor, uh, you know, the, the website Steam is how I'm trying. I don't buy it. I'm so bad at video games. You can check out our check out the, the video game podcast with, with Vance. It's, wow. Anyways, Steam shows up and they accept Bitcoin and you know they, they sell you video games for just Bitcoin. 2017, Japan allows Bitcoin as a legal payment. Norway pretty much does the same thing in 2017. All right. 2018, Samsung announces it's making computer chips that mine Bitcoins. And y'all, this is where you lose me completely. And not coincidentally, this is where the timeline ends. I've Googled dozens of explanations of Bitcoin mining. I understand the basic premise. I get that the more time you spend with your computer or your programs that are, that are running these complex mathematical equations, the more Bitcoins you will mine. I get that. Here's what I don't understand. Why the fuck does that matter? How do these supposedly complex mathematical equations relate to money? Just because I, I made a computer do some math and they got an answer, why is that valuable to anyone? Who are the people that want these answers? Who, who are the people that are even claiming this is, this is worth doing? It's not like we're solving equations to help find a cure for the coronavirus. We're just solving blank mathematical equations or just random mathematical equations. It's just blank's not the right word, but it's just solving just random bits of mathematical code. And it gives you an answer that helps nothing. So, by the way, foreshadowing, I think the next Everything is Interesting ellipses, that's debatable. It might just be like a formal or an informal interview of people and, and how they're entertaining themselves during this whole lockdown thing. Because, y'all, if I didn't have this podcast, I'd lose my friggin' mind. Like, I've, I've spent so much more time recently looking up stuff and doing things because I just don't have anything else to do. So, I mean, I think, I think that, that might be a decent episode. So, check that out. That'll be coming soon. But either way, that doesn't help me figure out why Bitcoin mining mathematical equations is worth anything. It, it doesn't make any sense. It, it just, it just, it's, right, look, Bitcoins are a commodity. I get that. All, all of these, they're all just like gold. Gold doesn't have any inherent value. It only has value because we say it does. I get that. And trade values change daily, just like any other arbitrary gold or cotton or even like pigs. They're all, tra- the value of them changes daily. I get that. So then why make an arbitrary system of equations as the root process for evaluation? I mean, best I can tell, I mean, best I can guess, it's just a digital mimicry of the physical mining for gold. But it's wholly unnecessary. It feels like that's just the big act of Bitcoin. They make up these fake mines and then people spend time, you know, quote, digging for Bitcoins or whatever. But here's the deal. I know for a fact it works. Uh, the company I work for has multiple servers devoted just to mining Bitcoins. And every few months we get a new cool thing because of it. Like we got this sweet espresso machine, or we got new monitors. Honestly, I like the espresso machine better. Like we were making our own, you know, flat whites and our own mocha. Like it, it's delicious, all because we bought it for free with bitcoins that we mined that cost us very little. Like I don't understand it, but I do get that it works. It is a very real thing because we, you know, quote mined enough bitcoins to buy stuff. So I mean, whatever. But okay, so that brings us more or less to today. With one single Bitcoin being worth $6,478.74. That's as of 10 o'clock, March 30th, 2020. Because this shit changes all the time. Now, $6,478 is a lot of money for one Bitcoin. However, it's not the highest current value of a crypto coin. There's a company called 42Coin. It's just 42Coin. 
and one of those is worth 14,433 American greenbacks, which is absurd. <laughs> Project X is another company. Uh, one unit is worth just under 9,700 bucks. Then there are five types of Bitcoin. I don't know if they're all related. I, it's, they all seem to have been stemmed from each other. But anyways, there's five types of Bitcoins that are all worth roughly 6000 to 6500 bucks. It's Bitcoin BEP2, wrapped Bitcoin, Bitcoin Classic, then something called the tokenized Bitcoin, which sounds racist, and RSK Smart Bitcoin. All those roughly 6200 6400 bucks, give or take. And that's the top six. They're top seven. Then it's a steep drop-off. The next one is Pax Gold. PAX Gold is 1500 bucks. Tether Gold, 1500 bucks. Perth Mint Gold Token. And, all the, and those are just the big hitters. That's just the top 10. There are thousands of these things. And you can, I mean, you can get them for anywhere from these you know, 6000 7000 each to 1500 each to 200 each. All the way down to uh, the 200th most valued Bitcoin or whatever is the buy-in token as well as the Igoris dollar, uh, 200 and 201 respectively, both worth about 53 cents each. Uh, Bitcoin diamond, only 52 cents each, which uh, Bitcoin diamond, great, great name choice. Diamond, it's not even worth a dollar. Anyways, my personal favorites, obviously, uh, well, <laughs> my second personal favorite, uh, 717th most valuable cryptocurrency is the shadow token. It's a shadow token. It's worth 1.6 cents each. And then you got to scroll all the way down. Talking way, way, way down on the list to get to Dogecoin. Good old Doger. He deserves pets. It's worth less than one cent. In fact, here's how it equates. One Bitcoin gets you 3,401,061 Dogecoins. So yeah, look, prices fluctuate every day. So honestly, by the time you're listening to this, all of that might be genuinely wrong. I mean, it, it changes in six days can drop anything. It dropped Bitcoin previously a thousand bucks or more. So, I mean, it's hard to say which currency is best, but we can calculate which currency has the most amount of real world dollars. Like I said, up at the top of the episode, the largest share, shareholder of the total circulated amount of you know money or value or whatever is Bitcoin. It's got over $113 billion worth of value behind it. To put that in perspective, the second largest shareholder or whatever is Ethereum with just under 15 billion. Basically 10% of the share that Bitcoin has, which now this probably won't surprise any of you. I also don't understand the stock market that well. But what I do know is that one stock doesn't take up 85% of the market value. So, I mean, this this new e-commerce digital dollar thing is, it, it, Bitcoin is the monster that's running around with the rest of everybody else. It, it's absurd. I, I mean, you know, like I said, $113 billion. That's just, that, that's crazy. So I wanted to look into who are the people that are atop these, you know, I mean, these fortunes, these online fortunes. And as it turns out, there are 17,971 people in the world who possess at least $1 million or more in cryptocurrency. Basically, 18,000 Bitcoin millionaires. And surprisingly, one of those Bitcoin millionaires is none other than Curtis Jackson. Good old 50 cent. Fitty, what up? Fitty sold his album Animal Ambition in the year 2014, and he allowed people to buy it via Bitcoin. In 2014, one Bitcoin was worth about 660 bucks. So uh, old Fitty... He accumulated, you know, give or take 600 Bitcoins. 
you know, whatever, give or take. By his own admission, he forgot about them. And then years later, he was going to declare bankruptcy. And maybe he did, maybe he didn't. It's, you know, I'm not going to go into the legal process. You can Google it if you really care. But he did try to declare it. was about to declare it or whatever. It was a big public stink. And his manager called him and goes, hey, man, nah, he, he, you, have, you have like $7 million. And Fitz was like, what are you, ta- what, what are you talking about now? At the time, Bitcoin was worth over $10,000 each. And he had over 600 Bitcoins. 50 admits he totally forgot about it, and now he had like $7 million just pop up. I can't imagine what that's like. Could you, ha, like if I find a $10 bill in my pocket, like that's, I'm a happy guy for like three days, (laughs) much less seven, anyways. Of the remaining 17,970 Bitcoin millionaires, the most notable, I think, is Michael Novogratz. He's he's net worth of like 1.5 billion, and he has an estimated $450 million worth of Bitcoins and other online currencies. But this guy, he doesn't even begin to touch Satoshi Nakamoto. In case you don't remember, he's a mystery man or woman or group or dog. I don't know. Whoever started Bitcoin supposedly has over 1 million Bitcoins still, which is like $6 billion. So, so who the F is this person? Who the F is SM? Well, many have tried to find out. Uh, some have even claimed to be him. And after, I, dude, I, yeah, just go with me there. After some digging, it seems the general consensus has it narrowed down to basically three people as the potential, you know, shadowy figure that is Satoshi Nakamoto. Depending on where you look, the three main candidates are Dorian Nakamoto, Craig Wright, and Nick Sabo, S-Z-A-B-O, Sizabu, I don't know, whatever. In 2014, Newsweek ran a big article claiming Dorian Nakamoto is Satoshi Nakamoto. And in the article, Newsweek published a picture of Dorian's house, which was, I mean, that's a jerk move. And it was horrible for Dorian and his family. Dorian came out and denied it. If you look at it, it ain't me. I don't know why it, this, it ain't me. But regardless, Dorian and his family were threatened and, and extorted and all kinds of nasty stuff by people that were trying to take his supposed fortune. A fortune that he came out and publicly claimed he didn't have. But regardless, people still thought he was lying or whatever. So, I mean, he got hassled over this big time. And in a great show of solidarity, I mean, truly, this is a beautiful thing. The Bitcoin community donated to Dorian 67 Bitcoins. I mean, basically saying, like, look, man, if you are or aren't, first of all, if you are, thank you. And if you're not, we're sorry. So, like, here's a bunch of money one way or the other. Thanks. Dorian still to this day denies that he is Satoshi. But he did cash out those 67 Bitcoins for like $275,000. So good on him. 2016, an Australian entrepreneur and, you know, overall technologic person by the name of Craig Wright, he comes out and he starts waving a flag saying, I did it. It's me. I invented Bitcoin. Many people don't believe him. Uh, in fact, in some tech circles, he's, he's viewed as a fraud or a clown or a jury or whatever. So a lot of people don't like him. In 2018, there's a video of this. I mean, it's interesting. If you care, Google it. Craig Wright was speaking to a crowd at a tech convention. And members of the crowd started getting pretty uneasy and not happy with him and starting to yell shit. One dude stood up and mocked him, saying, quote, Craig, you claimed that gamma could be less than zero, which makes no sense because gamma is the percentage of the network of a miner, which is by definition a percentage between zero and one. <laughs> End quote. Because you, you hear that, Craig? 
you you, you knit with everyone knows gammas between zero and one you you doo-doo headed pork dangler I mean, look, obviously, I don't even know what I just said. I literally have, like, everything I said between the quotes was absolutely real and happened, and people freaked out. Like, the audience stood up and clapped and were running over and patting this guy in the back. Like, I don't even know what a gamma is. I don't even know what a network of a minor is. But these people do, and they all started screaming. They were loving it. Apparently, people just don't like this Craig guy. So much so that Craig is now suing people who don't believe he is Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, I guess it happened so much and people call him out so much that he's, he's resorted to suing people who you know disagree with him, which aren't, it feels like that kid on the playground, you know, the, the kid that got caught in a lie and started threatening to tell the principal that everyone's being mean to me when really he started it. But anyways, this guy, so, you know, whatever, take Craig Wright for what you want. The third, and in my opinion, most likely person is Nick Sizabo. I mean, look, maybe it probably, I don't, I don't know. But according to the internet, it's probably Nick. Here are the facts, at least the facts I can find. 1998, Nick did design a thing called BitGold, which was another decentralized currency. It never really got off the ground, but the foundations of its technology were legit. Like, they were they were legit. And they were 10 years pre-Bitcoin. And look, eh, I don't understand any of it. To, to, people say that the, the, the core programming that he wrote looks a lot like the core. Like, I don't understand any of that stuff. Like, I tried, I can't, I'm over it. But if you Google Craig Wright, you get a ton of articles calling him a fraud. And if you Google Nick Zabo, you get a ton of articles claiming that he is Satoshi. I mean, look, with Nick, at least, with Nick Zabo, you can find a Fortune.com article, a Cointelegraph.com article, an Investopedia article, a FinanceMagnates.com. Like, the list goes on for pages on pages of Google. I can't prove anything. And look, obviously, just because the Internet says something doesn't mean it to be true. But at least in the realm of public opinion, Nick Sazabo is probably the guy, and Craig Wright is probably a doo-doo head. That is, unless it's been Hal Finney all along. Uh, if you remember the, the guy that was the first recipient of Bitcoins back in 2009. I mean, Hal clearly knew who Satoshi was. I mean, that, that, you, you're not going to accept these things from someone you don't know. So clearly he did know, and maybe it was himself. And so he sent them to himself as like a public way to hide his tracks. Like, look, I couldn't have done it. He did it. Satoshi sent it to me. That couldn't be me. You know what I mean? Like, it very well could be him as well. Problem is, Hal died in 2014. So if it's him, he'll never admit it. So we have no idea. Anyways, with all that said, I do want to try and wrap this up with some of the good that has been done thanks to Bitcoin. And then, honestly, there's, there's a lot of positivity that's come about because of all of these online currencies. I mean, obviously, I already said how Dorian Nakamoto was, was gifted 273, however many thousands of dollars as a Bitcoin just kind of community apology, which is super cool. Like, it, I know nothing about the Bitcoin community, but what I'm finding is, you know, it seems to be, good, you know, good dudes. Speaking of communities... Uh, big shout out to the folks on Reddit because uh, a few of y'all, a lot of y'all, a handful of y'all, you, you pointed me in the right direction for some of these things. I, look, I, I love you dick butts. You guys are awesome. So thanks. And I found loads more uh, positive things that have happened because of you know Bitcoin and, and all of these, like specifically the Bitcoin Pineapple Fund. I mean, you know, this is truly amazing. Somebody uh, had made you know plenty of money, I guess, uh, on Bitcoin. So they showed up and posted on Reddit. They were just like, look, I have 5,000 Bitcoins. And I want to help as many people as possible. I've made millions of dollars myself. I have such a surplus that I want to give back. So this person or persons, they gave a million dollars to the Watsi charity, a million dollars to the Water Project, 
a million dollars to EFF, which is a it's a program that fights for net neutrality, which today of all days, nowadays, we need that. Uh, these people gave $500,000 to BitGive. Uh, it's a foundation that goes, look, there's there's a lot of these. I'm not going to read this whole list to you. I can't remember. Anyways, in total, they gave over $85 million to charities. Just because, all thanks to user recommendations and Reddit and the Bitcoin community and all that. So it's amazing. This Okay, what's even more amazing, this next story is fascinating. There was a man in Venezuela who... Uh, his son was born during the economic crisis in 2019, which, look, I don't know anything about the economic crisis in 2019. Like, I remember kind of hearing a little blip about it and it went away. But get this, in January 2019, a cup of coffee in Venezuela cost 450 bolivars or bolivars, whatever, 450 Venezuelan things. Nine months later, still in 2019, that same cup of coffee, same cup of coffee was 14,000 bolivars. It went from 450 things to 14,000 things. So can you imagine the cost of birthing a child? It was literally in the millions. So I mean, like, dude, y'all, y'all I have two kids and insurance paid for pretty much all of it. I can't imagine being in this person's position. Thankfully, this man had enough Bitcoin to cover the fees. And, and, just, and this is just one of many people in Venezuela that used Bitcoins to survive. He, he just leveraged them and used them instead of his own cash because obviously they still have it. And so, I mean, there's a large portion of the population in Venezuela that are using Bitcoins instead of the Bolivar. I mean, re, I don't understand anything about global, global economic markets, obviously. I barely understand how Bitcoins work, and I've been looking at this stuff for weeks. But there are so many contradicting stories on is, is Bitcoin going to save Venezuela or is it actually you know bad for the long run? But regardless, as of right now, it actually is helping a lot of the, the, the commonwealth of Venezuela. And this is all, you know, internet hearsay, so they was worth, but that's amazing. Like that, that's, it's actually helping to fund an economic populace more or less. Like it's actually helping a, a working class of people that otherwise would have been just bankrupt. I mean, it, it, it's amazing. Like, there's an ever-growing list of positive things. I mean, there's there's just straight up a list of charities that accept Bitcoin. Save the Children, which is self-explanatory. Sean's Outpost helps the homeless. Watsi, that I mentioned earlier, is trying to bring healthcare to pretty much everybody in the world. And, and the list goes on. And, and the donations have been pouring in and between Bitcoin and all, Litecoin, all of them. They, they're all – it's – it is an amazing opportunity for for good-natured folk to be able to help out one another. In my opinion, there's there's a great hope in the positive uses for Bitcoin. Now, look, will that continue? Will it be twisted for evil? Look, I, clearly, I don't know. I, I don't understand any of this stuff. But it just right now, it's propping up an entire country's economy, even if it's temporary. Even if it's temporary, I think that makes the possibilities. I mean, they're limitless. Entire online civilizations could be created, with full-fledged economic circles being acted out in real time over the internet, all using anonymous online money. I mean, hell, look, these societies might already have been created, and I'm just not savvy enough to find them. Maybe people across the globe, they've already dropped out of real society and are solely interacting, buying and selling goods via Dogecoin. But I mean, look, what do I know? Not much, obviously, but what I can say for certain is that everything is interesting. This has been amazing. And if you, right now, have made it all the way through this after, well, after listening to the video game episode, I'm truly surprised. But if you've made it through this, I'm flattered. Uh, Thank you. 
Also, I promise Vance and I, we genuinely got better at co-hosting that show together. So please check out the new show, Everything is Interesting, dot, 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 that's debatable. And that's also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or whatever. We just did another episode. Uh, this time was on cell phones. And seriously, y'all, this was so good. The episode was great. The history of the telephone and it's it, the legal battles for patenting it. Like, I can't even, like, I can't even go into it because, y'all, it is beyond interesting. I, I have never been so surprised by what I, you know, just stuff I thought I knew, just things that I thought were commonplace. Like, the, the, the history of the phone is amazing. And then we go off on what we think of the modern day era. Anyways, it's awesome. Vance already created his own little segments that were funny. Like, trust me, it's worth a listen. Regardless, as always, I mean this. Thank you for listening. I love you. See you next time.